You see, people, the Lebanese have style. We have charisma. That's it. <laughs> Rani Shattah, it's such a pleasure talking to you. How are you doing, buddy? Hello, Sahla, good. Sharafna. Uh, by the way, we, we will lace the conversation with a bit of Arabic because I know from my previous conversations with Arabic speakers, uh, people absolutely love when we start speaking Arabic. Even if they don't understand the word, they just love the, the sound of it. So we'll certainly try to cater to their desire to learn Arabic. Uh, be, before we do this and before I you know, uh, get into who you are and so on and how you reached out to me, uh, this is going to be the third installment. I'm on a mission to identify all Jesus uh, Yahudiye, all the Jewish spies. And poor so, famous. poor famous. <laughs> Wait, how do you know it's going to be a Fayrus song? Wait a minute. So the way I've done it with some of my other guests, Faisal Saeed Al Mutar, who's an Iraqi activist, and then I did it with uh, uh, Hazim Faraj, who's a Palestinian guy. Uh, I will sing a song of my choosing. And if you guess who is the singer, and in your case, I might even ask what movie is the song from. Oh, wow. If you get this correctly, then this you get the imprimatur that you are not a Jewish spy. And you, in your case, you're a true Lebanese. Otherwise, I'm going to have my doubts. You ready? I hope so. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> okay, get ready. Here we go. I just want to make sure I get the lyrics right, although I know them. Okay, here we go. نسم علينا الهوى من مفراء الوادي يا هوى دخل الهوى خدني على على بلادي بلادي اوف اوف يا واو 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 who is the first, okay so first strike against you you didn't finish the song correctly the list goes on. Takfiris, anything you want. I lost. Mushrikun, and Mishrik. But so, who is the singer? Fairuz. Fairuz. And what movie is it from? That's a good question. I really don't know. Bint al Aris. I think that's what it is, if I'm not mistaken. And what the reason why I chose this song is because it actually is very poignant because the words uh, are really talking about, you know, the wind taking you back to your homeland. And uh, here we are, both Lebanese. You're sitting in Edinburgh doing your PhD, certainly probably longing about Lebanon. And I left Lebanon many, many years ago at the uh, start of the brutal civil war. And so it really resonates strongly. And I think if I remember correctly, whenever... Uh, Fairuz would sing these songs to the diaspora. That was one of the songs that they loved because it was so touching because it's talking about the wind carrying you back to your homeland. So there you go. Uh, you know, Mid Middle East Airlines, whenever you'd fly back into Lebanon, either during the war or just immediately after, they would sort of very loud Fairuz music as you're landing. So, yeah, so it's just you're landing into civil war, war-torn Lebanon, but Fairuz almost makes it like there was nothing happening. You're still okay with Fairuz. Mazbut. Very true. Very Something true. very special about that. Very true. Uh, so maybe we could start with how you reached out to me so that there's a context of how uh, we connected. Maybe you could tell us about this. And then maybe you could also tell us about sort of your educational background uh, and what you're doing now. And then it will lead us to some very poignant stories that you've experienced in your personal life. Take it away. Well, so finding you was kind of an, a complete accident, but it was a, it was a great thing. It was a, it was a wonderful accident. 
where I went on YouTube one night after leaving Beirut. And uh, I tried disconnecting from Lebanon and a lot of uh, the political situation, but also just the general headache, the Lebanese story. So I kind of wandered off in other directions. And um, a professor that I met in Beirut, who I guess is familiar to your audience as well, Daniel Dennett, kind of struck me as someone really interesting and went through his old YouTube archive and, you know, discovering people like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris as well, and stumbling into this American media that I know nothing about. So YouTube clips generated from things like the Young Turks, things, uh, things that I was not familiar with. And through that, discovering different things as well, like Dave Rubin and the Rubin Report, and then just literally clicking on this. Now, this is after like maybe several weeks of just ongoing searching in my free time. So I was getting farther and farther away from Lebanon. And I don't think anything's farther away than Dave Rubin in that sense. I went to California, and it's like it went in a different direction. And then you showed up on his in his Rubin Report sofa, I guess, in that room. Yes. And I'm like, what is? I know. I mean, the name is definitely Lebanese, right? And I wonder why he's saying, "Of course, God." He's not. Yeah, this makes perfect sense. Lebanese Jew who left Lebanon, and you started talking about your own story. And it brought me back to my own studies when I was at the American University of Beirut. And I did my dissertation on Lebanese Jews of Beirut. So it's, it was very nice to actually, by accident, reach my previous studies on YouTube with you talking about your own childhood in Lebanon. So I kind of got into you that way. I discovered your sad truth. Uh, the truth can hurt. The truth can set you free. But you can't hide from the sad truth. Now this, I mean, bravo, ya hello, bravo, ya hello. I mean, this and Godfather analogy, and I mean, you can't get better than that. So you know, it just kind of a little a bit of an addiction grew. I hope so. Otherwise, we're both screwed. And <laughs> to those who don't uh, understand, he's telling me a whole bunch of lovely compliments, and I'm saying you have wonderful taste. So there you right. go. <laughs> so go on. So okay, how, so. <laughs> how did you? Uh, so for your uh, thesis when you were at AUB, I guess that was your master's thesis, right? Uh, what what led you to be specifically interested in the plight of the Lebanese Jews post nineteen fifty eight? What what triggered that particular interest? Well, so I grew up in uh, post-Civil War Beirut. So my family would visit Lebanon during the Civil War from America. I, I was born in Texas and spent my childhood in Virginia, the suburbs of Washington, D.C. We used to visit Beirut and uh, visit Lebanon in the 80s. My family's actually from Tripoli in the north. So we'd do the long journey from Damascus, that very long taxi journey, because back then you couldn't drive easily from Beirut to Tripoli with the, uh, with, uh, the Green Line. So we would drive from Damascus all the way north to uh, the, the border with uh, Latakia, Tartus, and then into Tripoli. So I saw Lebanon in the 80s in, in just in the Tripoli context, never saw Beirut. But when we moved to Beirut in the early 90s, uh, I would walk into war-torn downtown regularly. Once they removed the landmines, once they cleared away all the, sort of the, the danger for pedestrian movement in, in war-torn downtown. And it was very easy to kind of get lost as a kid. And this is, I mean, th this is the Holiday Inn, destroyed, gutted, ghost shell, and then the hotel district. And I remember walking and sort of jumping into the synagogue when I was younger. Now, the Megan Evraham 
synagogue in Wadi Abu Jamil, the heart of Beirut. I grew so up there. Grew, you grew up there, yeah. So, I mean, that as a kid, sort of looking up and you see not just trees everywhere growing during the Civil War and nature taking over m- many abandoned buildings, this giant synagogue with stars of David all around made no sense. So later in life, when I was in my university, I was trying to figure out what to do my master's degree on, what kind of dissertation I wanted to do. I was kind of thinking back to those childhood walks. Wadi Abu Jamil is gone today. It's right. completely been bulldozed. My mother, by the way, had a store in Babidris. Babidris, yes. Yeah, so. so it's just, I mean, literally, the neighborhood is, I mean, it is the heart of Beirut. It is the dead smack center of the city. And today it's pretty much a security zone that you cannot easily walk through. The uh, government palace, the Sarai is up on the hill and many ministers live around and all that stuff. So it became increasingly difficult to walk into Wadi Abu Jmir. But the synagogue has been fully restored, locked up, can't go in, unfortunately, but it's sitting there. And I would often walk down that street and there was this old woman screaming from the balcony up on the roof, telling me, sort of the most like bizarre things like Jibli Akil ya ya Ashar, which means blonde guy. Give me food, Blondie, yeah. <laughs> and I would look up and this crazy woman just waving to me. She's like, Blondie, I said get me food. And I asked the supermarket guy downstairs, who is that woman? And he said, uh hey the Israeli Aishifo. I'm like, this this makes no sense. Shu Israeli Aishifo. I mean Azdak Yahudi. And he's like, no Yahudi Israeli. Meaning, the words are unfortunately uh, comparable. Let me interject right there, if I may, before you go on. Uh, I've I've talked about this exact issue that in Lebanon, uh, I don't know if it's still the case, I'm sure it is, but in my time of growing up in Lebanon, everybody had a hawiyeh, right? Your internal uh, card. uh, And on that card was written your religion. And the Jews, it wasn't written Yahudi, it was written Israeli which is exactly what you're saying, right? So in yeah. some way, you removed our Lebanese identity. You somehow created even more animus towards us by making us Israelites, not Jews who are Lebanese. So yeah, it's, it's exactly what you're saying. Yeah, go ahead. The updated version of the Ikhraj Ed, which is what you're talking about, the birth certificate that we all had to fold and put in our wallets. Now there's the Hawiyya, the basic ID, which good that they removed it from the ID itself. So it's no longer there. Ah, the religion is no longer on the Hawiyya. Gone. Oh, yeah. Wallah, okay. Yeah. The the sect, religion, that has been, but it's on the birth certificate still. And you have to carry your birth certificate with you wherever you walk. No, it's oh, no okay. longer. Okay. It's just the uh, the ID. Okay. Yeah. So go and, back to your story. So so. The... No, that's, but that was interesting because that is something I she showed me. So she showed me when I I kind of invited myself upstairs and I got her food because that's really what she wanted and I got her some stuff from the supermarket. Went upstairs and she was. Not, I mean, she's a squatter. So she was basically an internally displaced Lebanese refugee, if that's the right word. She was living in a different part of the city. She ended up in that neighborhood during the Civil War and took over an abandoned apartment. And her brother had lived with her. He died. Her neighbors had passed on. She was the last woman in that building, just sort of sitting, waiting to die. And she was, by accident, the last Lebanese Jew of the... Jewish neighborhood in Beirut. Now, I don't think this took it, I don't think she cared much about that. That was more interesting to me than I think it was to her. I don't think she could care less if she was the last one or the first one. She was just kind of a bit of a prankster. She had a sense of humor and she she liked um, 
she liked trying to get money or get food or get whatever she could, get some attention. I think, I think she was, uh, she was actually very comical. And I don't think she ever understood just how hilarious she could be. So we're sitting in her room and she's like, Ya Ash'ar, you blondie, what do you want to know about me? And I said, well, first your name. And she said, don't tell anyone. My name is Liza Nahmoud. But people called me Liza Sroor. And I said, why don't you go by Nahmoud? And she's like, this is a Lebanese Jewish name. You should never say, I am Nahmoud. I am Sroor, Liza Sroor. So that first thing, she was kind of hiding a bit of her identity still. And this is probably 2000 and 2007, maybe 2006. So this is, uh, I mean, this is long after Wadi Abu Jamil was being, you know, demolished. So would and, other people have known that this woman is a Jewish woman or was it really a closely guarded secret that sort of she shared with you, but very few other people would have known? Few other people knew. Okay. Uh, one of them was uh, the Lebanese community, elder, Lebanese Jewish community elder. His name was Joseph Mizrahi. And he was living in Nice at the time, and he died abroad. So he knew, I spoke to him, there was a journalist for Nahad newspaper, Joseph Tarab. He was the art critic, himself a Lebanese Jew. And he knew of her. So few people in the neighborhood spoke about her, but as the Israeli, right. not as the Jew. Which, I mean, this is just unfortunate lexicon. They didn't fix that term. I mean, she's, she's Lebanese Jew. She's Lebanese. She's very Lebanese. Lebanese. Exactly. Very, very Lebanese. Very as, Lebanese. As, as we are. I mean, uh, yeah. I speak uh, much better Arabic than I speak Hebrew, right? Sure. And I mean, I don't think she knew one thing about Israel anyway. It was just sort of she was just a squatter with a sense of humor. And she managed her life accordingly. But I asked to see her birth certificate because I was confused why she kept saying Nahmoud and Surur. And she brought it up. And on the uh, mezhab, on the sect... It said Musawiye, mm. so follower of Moses, right. as opposed to Israeliye. And uh, the old days, which I guess is from your time, the birth certificate was in French and Arabic. Mm. So there was the dual. And the, the, this is a terrible translation of Israelite, like you said. Israelite in French, meaning Hebrew, meaning Jewish. And they, they just translated it into Israeliye in the old days. So that's, I mean, going back to your generation, your time. It's a it's a terrible association. It makes no sense. Right. It's just a throwing a uh, an identity on a community that's uh, I get it's imposed. Imposed right. identity. I was fascinated with her though, and she uh, she I, I at that time started giving history tours of Beirut, and I eventually sort of uh, developed a proper walking tour of the city that included this neighborhood, Wadi Abu Jamil. Now, this, this would be, this, this, I think it was called Walk Beirut, right? Walk, yes. Was that targeted to Lebanese people so that they learn about the history of their city? Or was it largely targeting tourists? Although I suspect that there weren't a huge number of tourists that were in Lebanon at this time, no? Well, so in, in 2008, Beirut was shut, the downtown was shut down. This was during the protests, Hezbollah-led protests. The city center was pretty much a lockdown. And there was the permanent sit-in, so you couldn't walk into downtown Beirut easily. And there were a uh, brief civil war erupted in Beirut in May of 2008. So there was no tourism whatsoever. But this was around the time that I was putting this tour together. My initial attempt was just Lebanese students or anyone that wanted to do this with me. And it was just going to be a hobby. In addition to my studies, I would walk around and talk about Beirut. And the, uh, I, at the time, I was managing a small pension 
a student pension affiliated with the university. So I had a few foreign guests anyway. And I would do this any, regardless. I would walk around and share stories of the city. And these were stories uh, written by uh, Samir Asir, the Lebanese journalist who was assassinated in, in 2005. And these were also inspired by Kamal Salibi, the Lebanese historian, the dinosaur of Lebanese history, who was at the time affiliated with AUB, but I was renting my home from him. So I would actually converse with him a lot about Lebanese stories from his time. And this is maybe the 40s, 50s, 60s, the better times for Lebanon and, and Lebanese history. So I had already inspirations in place. And I kind of did the research on my own. But I was personally most interested in that neighborhood, in Wadi Abu Jmir, because that was a giant chunk of Lebanese history being bulldozed to the ground. And it's impossible to replicate once it's gone. You cannot bring that community back or the relics for that matter. The history, the architecture, the, the Talmud Torah school, the Jewish uh, school next door, the Alliance. Alliance. Yeah. You, I mean, you, once they're gone, they're gone for good. And Lisa, just by accident, happened to be the last human example of that was once a flourishing community in, so a, in, I, in the city. So I had heard that at, at, at one point they had done, I don't know if it was a formal or informal census, that there were 40... Lebanese Jews that were still in Lebanon, many of whom no longer sort of openly identified as Jewish. Either they married somebody, you know, 40 years ago and they no longer practice Judaism or, you know, whatever it was, but there were 40. Is there an update on that number? So was it down to literally that one person? Or I mean, how many people could we say today are living in Lebanon who self-identify openly as Jewish? I don't think there's an exact figure. And yeah. I think the number is, I would, I would assume the number hovers around that. Right. I, I, I can't imagine it being much more. Right. Uh, right. But uh, there was um, Jean Arazi, who was the most recent Lebanese Jewish community elder who was helping uh, re restore the synagogue. And I think other than him and his family and the few other families that have stayed put, the community is pretty much detached. And unfortunately, unfortunately for good, I don't think this is a community that returned en masse after the Civil War. On the contrary, it's sort of co constant, uh, it's net exodus. <laughs> so let me, let me interject here. Uh, so first, regarding the Magen Avraham uh, Synagogue, uh, I recently received, coincidentally, from Nassim Talib, uh, yes. many people would know who he is, a, a friend, a Lebanese friend and very famous author, uh, a... Uh, a attachment showing a, a photo attachment showing the current state of sort of the refurbished version of uh, the synagogue and you're exactly right that it certainly looks much better than it it, it had in the past and so there yeah. it, it, you, you're right that there definitely has been an effort to refurbish it I'm not sure for what purpose since there isn't a practicing Jewish community perhaps for historical or architectural reasons uh, but uh, well, it's actually, it's built into the uh, Solidaire, which is the right. company that has restored pretty much the entire downtown. Beirut. This is the Hariri group, right? Well, it's, uh, I mean, it, yeah, he started the company, started but then company. It, became, uh, it became by default a Lebanese government enterprise, a private company working with the Lebanese government, and yeah, initiated by Rafiq Hariri. Yeah. Uh, race, it, I'm sorry. Then. sorry. The, the religious sites were not touched. So the churches, the mosques, and the synagogue were left and were not sort of that, – that was the exception, that those would all be restored, in, including the synagogue. I think I saw a documentary at one point 
uh, I think it was a BBC documentary on the Jews of Lebanon, and they might have gone, I don't know if it was maybe in Saida, and they had gone to a a sort of a Jewish quarter in Saida uh, that had once, uh, you know, had some thriving Jewish community and a synagogue, which was yeah. now being squatted by some other folks. Uh, so yeah, it's very sad, but I wanted to sort of talk about the, the, the return of the diaspora. Uh, I was recently, and I was pleasantly surprised, I was recently contacted on two occasions uh, by the Lebanese government. One, by the Consul General of Montreal, uh, because they were setting up a, uh, a, a writer's group of Lebanese authors, and I had been chosen as one of these authors, and so I went to the Consul General uh, which was very, very nice to kind of be back into. Well, I wasn't in Lebanon, but I was at the Consul General of Lebanon, so that made me feel very warm. Uh, yeah. And then the second invitation I received, which I don't think I will be accepting uh, for reasons that we can get into, um, they identify, uh, this is under the auspices of the Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs, who is trying to kind of bring back you know, prominent Lebanese back to Lebanon. Uh, he started in 2014 an event, I think it's held every May, where they invite people back to Lebanon, people from science, from from literature, from business, uh, to try to renew their connection to Lebanon. Of yeah. course, I'm not going to go back uh, because I don't think it's very safe for me to go back. Uh, not only because Lebanon itself is not safe, not only because I'm Jewish, but also because I take very open and public positions about things that would probably not make me a very popular guy in that region. And so, regrettably... I won't be exercising this wonderful opportunity to go back to Lebanon. What do you think? Um, I don't think there's ever a good time to invest in a proper return to Lebanon. I think even when things are, are safe enough for tourists to return or whenever you have these uh, New York Times articles, the number one city to visit, Beirut, and this happens every few years, I don't think there's ever the right time to return. And I would also say... I don't think there's any uh, critical danger for you returning to Beirut, even if that means returning with your family and spending a few few months there. I can't imagine the investment into trying to discredit you or to to harm you, or I, and if especially in a university context, I don't think that kind of bubble has been penetrated. Okay. Now that this, I mean, this is just my own subjective experience, and these are this includes, I think, AUB. LAU, the other ones, NDU, uh, San Joseph University, I think they've been largely spared. And this is still where you have some give and take in the battle of ideas. And maybe this lends itself well to Daniel Dennett being at AUB a few years ago, spending six months there. I don't think most Lebanese even knew who he was or cared for that matter. And the student body never made any uh, demands to have him removed. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have a bunch of people, a bunch of crazy people that get invited too. But I, I think um, I, I don't, I can't imagine you being sort of uh, the target of anything malicious. That said, that said, I think as the years go by, that luxury maybe is eroded bit by bit. So five years from now, ten years from now, I can only imagine it being more complicated. Right. Right. So I, that's yeah. It's one of my great regrets because. Uh, you know, we, we have two young children and, uh, you know, it's always been my hope that they learn all of our languages. So English, French, of course, Arabic, Hebrew, and my wife also speaks Armenian. But the reality is that in the context of uh, Montreal, it, it's difficult to, it almost feels strained 
when I try to speak to them in Arabic because they're not living in an Arabic context. Whereas yeah. I could easily imagine that if I were to go on a sabbatical leave for one year to AUB where I immerse them all day long in nothing but Arabic at a, and given the very young age that they're at today, they could very easily still become fluent uh, speakers as though it were their mother tongue. And this is something that's really weighing heavily on me because, of course, it's going to become a lot more difficult for somebody to learn Arabic and all of the pronunciations and so on uh, once you pass puberty, uh, once it becomes truly a second language to acquire, second or third or fourth. Uh, but so, I'd only add one thing there. Yeah. And I don't know if maybe this has changed dramatically that Beirut is the worst place to learn Arabic. And all these students who go to study Arabic never come out with a word. They, and, I mean, AUB especially, and that environment is so English-friendly. And it's almost, it's almost um, it might be the exception in the entire Middle East where you hear more English than you do Arabic. And on the streets of Hamra and uh, Ras Beirut and that little area... It's very hard for the for the like the the Arabic stu studying uh, the foreigner who wants to learn Arabic to invest a career by starting in Beirut just never works. They they end up running away to Jordan or to Morocco. Or but it's maybe but it's interesting that English seems to have become sort of the predominant language because at the time that I was growing up in Lebanon, uh, it would be of course Arabic and French. English right. would be a distant third, very, very distant third. So when I first moved to, to Canada, I didn't speak English. Uh, I knew, of course, Arabic was my mother tongue and then French, which, yes. of course, I, I also knew fluently. Uh, but the only, the only exposure I had to English was through the consumption of typically American culture. So when I would be at my father's store in Hamra, uh, 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 Magdasi. I don't know if you know it. This is actually where I grew up. Great. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is literally parallel to Hamra. Exactly. Yeah. And so he would take me uh, to watch uh, movies. I was a young, uh -huh. I was a young boy, and mm -hmm. so you know, I got to see all the spaghetti westerns with uh, Clint Eastwood and all these kinds of uh, movies that left a deep impression on me. But so any exposure I had to English was through popular culture. And so it's funny that now, so what you're saying basically is that French has lost quite a bit of its influence in Lebanon and it's been overtaken by English, you would say? Uh, in the, in the, at least in the education realm, I guess it's still evenly divided. Okay. That you either go through the French system or you end up learning English by default. Mm -hmm. And I think that has been, so French is still taught regardless. Uh, and even if you're studying in the American style system or the English uh, system that you're, you're going to learn French anyway. They're going to teach it to you at the at the at least the intermediate level. But I think French as a spoken language in Lebanon has dramatically dropped. Gotcha. Even even in, even in the areas that are more more friendly to French speaking Lebanese, this would be Ashrafi, for example, in the eastern sector. You hear more and more English and French. I guess this is a global phenomenon, not just Lebanon, Middle East, but French in general has been on the decline. And of course, incidentally, now that I live in Quebec, uh, the Quebec government is uh, uniquely insecure about their linguistic heritage. And so, uh, you know, they're in a sea of English. And yes. so they repeatedly uh, erect or pass these language laws that are progressively more draconian precisely because they are so afraid that their culture and their language will be swallowed by the sea of English Canada and America. Uh, and so, in a sense, uh, I find that quite disheartening because 
Uh, I'd like to think that these mechanisms happen naturally. I don't think you should uh, create yeah. these laws to protect your. I mean, li I mean, it's literally to the point where uh, the language uh, office from the government will go to retail stores and tell them that their English sign is yes. is bigger or 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 the font size is too big compared to the French to the French size. So when you're getting to that level of linguistic protection, it's becoming a bit absurd. But that's there are some symptoms of desperation, I think, more than that. <laughs> but but in a very Lebanese context, you probably know bonjour, bonjourin, right? <laughs> so hello, hello. It's the Lebanese right. way. Of, that's been replaced by hi, hi, in. So that's a very Lebanese example. Yeah, of they, how they, our, 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 our viewers might not understand these nuances, oh. but certainly I do. Uh, yeah. All right, let's move on. So, so okay, so you, 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 you become interested in all this, uh, you know, the Lebanese Jewish community. You, you interview this woman, and I will uh, post some of your uh, articles where you interviewed her at the bottom of our clip. Uh, so then let's fast forward. Now you're pursuing your PhD in Edinburgh University in Scotland on yeah. uh, Lebanese sovereignty, which we can talk about in a second. But let's contextualize that in the greater context of your family. Uh, and here we're going to get into a very painful tragedy. Uh, one of the when you sent when you first reached out to me, you, you told me about your interest in the Lebanese Jewish community. And then you told me uh, about your father's uh, assassination. He was a very prominent politician, a minister of finance uh, under a previous Lebanese government, and then he was assassinated. Maybe you could walk us through who he was, what he was trying to do in Lebanon, and then maybe, if you can, describe uh, the tragic end. Sure. So uh, my father, we, 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 we settled <coughs> in the States during the Civil War. I was actually, so I was born in the States and kind of had an American life early on. My father was... Um, working at the IMF at the time, and uh, very eager to return to Lebanon once the Civil War ended. And the first chance he got, he returned. And this is back in the early 90s, and he worked at the Central Bank of Lebanon. Now that sort of Lebanese career went back to the States. He was quickly assigned to become the Lebanese ambassador to the U.S. So by a strange thing that I left the U.S. to move to Lebanon, and a few years later, returned to the U.S. as a diplomat's son, right. which really made no sense. But the good news right. is you can't get parking tickets, so there are benefits to that, right? I actually forfeited the diplomatic plates. Ah, I refused, well. Yeah, I refused wow. to be part of it. Good and for I, you. Yeah, I mean, it did cost me a few tickets, though, come to think of it. <laughs> Maybe I was stupid, actually. <laughs> but uh, I, I kind of wanted to re-identify with America as my childhood. I didn't feel like a foreigner in the U.S. I was just gone for a few years. So I kind of, but living at the Lebanese embassy as an ambassador's son kind of opened my eyes a bit to what was happening in Lebanon and the region and things you don't really understand as a kid. But maybe when you're growing in your teenage years and you're living at the embassy and you overhear conversations and you witness what's happening. And these were the years where Syrian hege hegemony was really increasing. And uh, this is post-Civil War Lebanon. So pretty much up until 2005, that Syria was the dominant actor in Lebanese politics. And this kind of found its way into the embassy in the U.S. And we'd have, um, I mean, now this is bizarre, but back then the Syrian ambassador to the U.S. would visit us. And these were not very polite uh, visits. These were kind of just, uh, I mean, they were diplomatic, but they were not... Um, it wasn't, we were really looking forward to this. And he's now the foreign minister of Syria, Walid Ma'allim. 
the really giant beast of the, I mean, the foreign ministry there. So, I mean, this is somebody I met as a kid. Uh, we would sort of entertain other guests and later on figure out that, okay, these are pretty much idiots or these are people that are trying to fix things. And there's a plethora of these types of characters that show up at the embassy. Now, you're, how, how old are you when, when your father is, uh, become, is appointed Lebanese uh, ambassador to the U.S.? Six, 16. So, so I mean, you, so you're old enough that if you're eavesdropping on conversations, you, sure. you know, you're mature enough to understand some of the dynamics. Yeah, and even living in Beirut earlier, I mean, I remembered vividly the Syrian checkpoints and the 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 sort of uh, mild harassment you would get from sort of just Syrian soldiers who had nothing better to do. Al-Muqabarat al-Suriya. Let me let me explain this to people who are, who might not be familiar. Uh, so you know, there's always this idea that they would be uh, the Syrian government listening in on you. Uh, in case you say something that is improper, that can sort of get you to disappear. But this was even the case before, or much earlier when we were there. And so yes. I remember when we moved to Lebanon, uh, to Montreal from Lebanon, when my mother would sometimes be speaking to me on the phone, she would tr- she would speak in code, as exactly. as if to so that the muhabarat don't understand. And I would tell her, "Mom, we're 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 in Canada. You don't have to speak in code." But that was sort of her her reflex. Uh, because yeah. there's going to be big brother apparatus that is listening in on you. So anyways, go on. But this is exactly how Lebanon functioned. Uh, pretty much until the Syrians quit in 2005. There was this hush-hush attitude. Even flying the Lebanese flag at times was was sort of a, uh, a difficult thing to do. You'd have people watching and you didn't want to ever dare say the word Assad. Hafiz right. al-Assad, Bashar al-Assad. That would cause you difficulty. Wherever you were in the country, it didn't matter. So I, I had that in the background. I knew that as a kid that you had to be careful. I don't know if this is worth sharing here, but I had my watch. Do you remember the Casio G-Shock watch? These like giant Casio watches kids would wear in the early 90s, mid 90s. Maybe. Maybe like stopwatch, temperature. It's unnecessarily big and sort of uh, obvious. I was walking past the Syrian checkpoint and the Syrian soldier looked at me. He said, playing on words, he said, which means what time is it? Now, of course, I looked. I'm like, oh, it's five o'clock. He said, meaning how much is it? Like, how much is it worth? I told him, ah, maybe $20. And he said, I'll give you five. <laughs> I have almost the exact same story with my, with my eldest brother, Moshe, being stopped by... Palestinian militia and them telling him give us your watch and him if I remember correctly the story him getting upset because he said no I won't give you the watch it was a gift from my mother so it's unbelievable how these sort of mundane little snippets of life repeat themselves across completely different people unbelievable I'm sure now it's going to be the iPhone, you know, the <laughs> telephone <laughs> doesn't work anymore. <laughs> no, but it's familiar stuff. I mean, this is just uh, low ranking soldiers who have nothing to do but harass and they take every opportunity. So that, that was my, I mean, I knew that anyway. And Lebanon is complicated regardless with or without Syrian presence. But you, I knew about Lebanese problems in a, in a teenage context. But in the embassy, in the, there was a, this was roughly around the time the Israelis were pulling out of Lebanon in 2000. And I do remember the Syrians being very upset 
that the Israelis were leaving Lebanon, and to me made no sense. Why would the Syrians be upset? I mean, this is in, I mean, if you look at it in the narrative that we're given, right? This is a good thing. Israeli occupation is ending. It sort of it fits the logic. But no, if you're a dictatorship that is playing a very, very dangerous game on foreign hegemony for your own survival, you don't want the Israelis to quit Lebanon. You need legitimacy, and that legitimacy is being exposed, and Hezbollah doesn't have a reason to fight, and became chaotic. I was living in, in the embassy at that time, so there was uh, I was sort of aware of, of things did not fit the narrative. Now, I was not astute. I was not maybe too impassioned by it. I had other concerns. And when you're 18, 19, it's usually girls, music. Uh, why did Guns N' Roses break up? And now it's like, why are they coming back together? You know, it's, <laughs> or even just learn, driving around and hanging out with friends in university. So I was not immersed. in Music is haram. Music is haram. Guns N' Roses today is haram. <laughs> Firuz uh, is okay. Haram, by the way, for those of you who don't know, it's it means forbidden. And so yes. in, in Islam, you have halal and haram, what is allowed and what is not. So I was just joking with him because there are certain edicts that say that music should be forbidden in a religious sense. But anyways, go on. Uh, no, but basically that was the, that was the background. Now, in, in 2005, and pretty much up, up until then, my father was removed from the embassy. There was a government change in Lebanon very, very pro-Syrian government installed in 2000. My father's had a forced resignation. We stayed in the U.S. So he returned to the IMF. 2005, uh, Rafiq Hariri was assassinated. Now, Rafiq Hariri was probably the most prominent politician to emerge out of Lebanon following the civil war. I don't think any other name has that kind of uh, stature. Love him or hate him, it doesn't matter almost. He's a he's larger-than-life character. His assassination was, was a very big... It actually, we're still dealing with the consequences of that assassination. And in 2005, February 14, for whatever, that, Valentine's Day 2005, that assassination, I think, brought many Lebanese back to Lebanon, just as it happened after the Civil War. There was almost a, a yearning for the diaspora that thought they could fix things, to return and try to fix things once again. Now, my father had, I guess, two stages. One is being early 90s, and then just after 2005. And his son, uh, Saad al-Hariri, who was the, a recent former minister of Lebanon, quickly brought him on board to be an unofficial advisor, just sort of an economic sort of uh, voice in the background. And that quickly materialized into the primary advisor, political advisor, uh, almost his number, his sort of number two in the Lebanese government, but not somebody that was taking on a public role all the time, kind of in the, in the background. Right, right. And this continued until his assassination. But then he, became, he was Minister of Finance at one point, right? Well, yeah, he was Minister of Finance, and I know this because he told me, and he did not want to be the Minister of Finance. Lebanese, I think, like to become ministers of whatever they can be just sort of like a prestigious showing off thing. This was against his will. He was kind of, uh, he, he, he didn't want to be a minister to begin with. He didn't want to be a politician per se. He didn't want to, he never ran for any uh, uh, government seat. He never uh, was part of the uh, parliamentary system. He always wanted to be in, in the background. But he did serve as a minister during the unity government 
2008, early 2009, very sort of small window. And then he got out and returned to being an advisor. But he returned as an advisor for a prime minister that left Lebanon. Saad al-Hariri quit in 2009 and only returned recently. So he was, in a way, a former prime minister engaging in Lebanese politics from either Paris or Saudi Arabia. His man in Lebanon was my father. And my father was kind of more inclined to speak with visiting diplomats or, or ambassadors based in Beirut or sort of uh, the geopolitics of the region. I don't think he had much appreciation or, or care for the internal squabbling that has characterized Lebanese politics. And this includes the most recent surge of sectarianism. There was not one sectarian bone in my father, not not one, and he what, didn't. Uh, did he consider himself to be an atheist? Was he open about that? Was he? Did he consider himself to be religious? So you guys are from a Sunni family, right? Yeah, but we're as Sunni as we are anything else. Right. I mean, it's so, almost like a, I mean, he he uh, he considered himself a free thinker. That's how he identified himself. Right. Now I don't know if that translates even well. Because Lebanese don't really care. They don't understand these things. It's not like free thinker. What does that mean? He's, he's Sunni from Tripoli. Right. He's a free thinking Sunni from Tripoli. It's almost like, you know, you're, whether you want to be or not, you're put into that category. Right. But he, uh, he, was a, he liked to think out of the box in everything he did. This included managing his relationship with his children, with his wife, uh, managing his financial affairs, managing his identity with Lebanon and wanting to leave. And he, I think, always found a creative way to handle his problems and his occupational issues, his personal life. And I think that can that probably the best description of him, of the free thinker. The man wanted to wear a bow tie and bring it back to life. That was his interest. By the way, just for you to know, yeah. I, I watched the documentary that you sent me and I saw that episode on the bow tie. Yeah. I've been wearing bow ties for over 20 years. So whenever I wear a formal thing, I usually don't wear a tie. I wear a yes. bow tie. So I know that your dad and I would have got a, gotten along famously well. I, I, that I know for sure. And I, 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 uh, He was most interested in Daniel Dennett. That occupied his, you know, we would meet regularly. And this was often, I guess in hindsight, this was a risky adventure, but didn't really care. We'd meet on the Cornetian, we'd take long strolls on the sunset, sort of Mediterranean backdrop. Most beautiful place to have a father-son relationship. All he would talk about were memes, Zimbos, and Daniel Dennett dialect. And I'm like, I don't even know what he's talking about. And the moment Daniel Dennett arrived, I mean, it felt so good to hide this away from him briefly. And then kind of nudge him and say, I think... Daniel Dennett's visiting. Wow. Actually, yeah. So th bringing these two people together was my biggest accomplishment. So that they get to interact a lot and develop a friendship? They developed a friendship and uh, we had several lunches and dinners together. Wonderful. And I felt my father was a huge fan. It was almost embarrassing at times where I kind of had to tell Dennis, like, nah, you know, I mean, he, he likes you, but I'm sorry that he's so into this. <laughs> it was almost, it was hilarious that he almost cared more about this than the stupid Lebanese politics, which was pretty much his job. So he had an outlet, which was healthy. He, I, I inherited his, this is a strange thing, where 21st century assassinations, you inherit things, and I inherited his iPad. This is a strange relic to carry on from your father. This wouldn't have happened five years ago. And now this is, these are the things you keep with you to remember your father. Wow. And I, I've kept it with me. 
it's a strange thing to hold on to, but it, I mean, it's there. It's his iPad. I consider this almost like his diary or his notebook. And I went through his YouTube searches. I mean, it's, it's Daniel Dennett over and over and over and over. And over. Uh, quantum mechanics and uh, things that really are so not Lebanese. So he immersed himself in that world heavily. heavily. Did, did he walk around given that I'm guessing he took some positions that were uh, anti some of the geopolitics of the region, which I suppose led to his assassination. So with that in mind, did he typically have a large security detail? I mean, how was your daily life in terms of if you walk out somewhere, do you have 17 bodyguards or are you just walking as a sort of free, open public people? He had a driver. That That's was, it. Okay. Yeah, driver. And the driver driving our family car. So it wasn't a uh, rare occasion that there would be a small convoy only because there's someone with him in the car. But uh, my, my personal life, my brother's life, my mom, uh, we did not take any precautions. He, uh, the driver was armed at, at certain points where if it was considered dangerous, there would be a weapon in the car. But it was not what you would imagine as a sort of full entourage, one person only, at now, most in, person. In retrospect, was that uh, lacking in, 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 you know, he wasn't sufficiently prudent or was there really no reason to suspect any danger? I mean, what, what was it? Is it that he miscalibrated the risks or, or, or was it a surprise? What, what's the dynamic there? I think, well, I think the larger sort of story is that it's, it was unthinkable to imagine someone like him being in the crosshairs of that issue, that you have struggling regimes, you have uh, Lebanese domestic actors with ties to those regimes, that they would take the extra step to assassinate someone like him. There were other people that maybe you could follow that logic and say they were prime suspect and prime, prime target. And uh, maybe that they were so vocal and so out there and sort of pushing that they were going to be targeted. But I don't think my father really fit that mold one bit. And I, I say that because he was, not, um, he was not in a position of power when he was assassinated. And he was, he was advising an ex-prime minister. So it's not like he was not a decision maker in Lebanese position in Lebanese affairs. He was almost uh I wouldn't say detached, but he was influencing a man from afar. Now, I think that does not register as a direct threat and I think uh for that reason he did not really see a need to be extra careful. And so and what so given given what you just said about him that you know But just one, one, one other thing that even if he was being threatened repeatedly, if he had phone calls and letters or whatever you want, being told that he's going to die, I don't think he would have taken those steps regardless because the man wanted to live a normal life in Lebanon. Right. And I think that was his primary goal was to have normal uh, relationships with his friends, his family, as best as he could. So I, I think even if things were more difficult at that time, he would have not done something drastic. He would have never left if that makes sense. So so given the fact that from what you're saying, he wasn't sort of on the high danger list in terms of, you know, causing a ruckus in, 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 ter in terms of the dynamics in Lebanon. So why do you, I mean, I know you may never have an exact answer, uh, but why do you think then he was specifically targeted? What is it about him? You know, soft spoken man, a man of ideas, uh, a free thinker. 
why was he specifically targeted? What made him his voice uniquely dangerous that we should take the effort to get rid of him? If you make the assumption without having an investigation or a proper investigation, without having a, a decent trial where you can sit and watch people being arrested and sort of draw conclusions, a luxury in the West where you actually are exposed to the killers, you see them go to jail and that's that. You can overcome it eventually. Uh, you're robbed of that in Lebanon. So all you have is hysteria. You have people lying to you, telling you other people did it. You have Jews, Jews, no? Uh, there's only, you know, in this whole story of modern Middle East fiasco, there's only one good thing maybe that's emerged, is that people do not blame the Jews for everything anymore. That it's, now there are other what? scapegoats. Now you, mean, the, you mean a calamity can happen in the Middle East without you blaming it? Right? Today it is sunny, it's the fault of the Jews. Today it is raining. It is the fault of the Jews. We no longer do that, you're saying? I think it's taken a backseat. Okay. Now the, the, the enemy is more creative now. So it's the crusading Salafist Zionist at most, right? Like not, <laughs> the, the Jew has been the Zionist Takfiri crusader who's chasing everything or, or other players that, you know, you can imagine. And so, I mean, I think that was easily dismissed, even though you do hear people. In, in prominent positions, whether it's in Lebanon or the region, that would say, well, you can never discredit Israeli intentions, right? But I think at least in my personal situation with my father, uh, whether it's a 1% chance or 2% chance or zero, doesn't that, that can be shelved completely. That he was not in any way involved in that Arab-Israeli conflict. You can come up with very elaborate conspiracies to push that that narrative, but I, that's something that just, you can throw that away. Uh, the other ones that came up, oh, you know, the Sunni Salafists, Saudi Arabia, uh, general terrorism, right, which adds up to nothing. Uh, but he was challenging a status quo that I think many Lebanese paid the ultimate price for, and he was pushing for Lebanese sovereignty. And that sounds like a ridiculous struggle, because it should come... It should be there, Lebanese sovereignty. A state should have the means to control its destiny. A lot of Lebanese have died pushing that forward. I think he's just the most recent example of that. Now, why him, specifically him? Uh, I don't have tangible evidence. It's not like I have anything that I can specifically point to, other than a letter that we leaked. And we leaked uh, a letter that he was drafting to Iran's president, Rouhani. Uh, we being my family, we put it out there just after his assassination because we found and, and it. And by the way, it is on, on your father's website and I will share the link so that people can go and, and check it out, the draft. Go on. We, we handed it over. Wall, Wall Street Journal was at the funeral. Just sort of take this. It was the first sort of obvious outlet that we thought would get it out there. And they put it up immediately. And it's a very, very diplomatic letter to Iran's president calling on Iran and that system to kind of let go of Hezbollah and form a new page in Irani-Lebanese relations. Now, this is wishful thinking, but it's at a time where Barack Obama was communicating with Iran, the Saudis are talking to Iran, the Emirates are talking to Iran, everyone's talking to Rouhani. 
And if you go back far enough, Rouhani was considered to be the shining star. Everyone would sort of, Rouhani was going to usher in a new chapter in Irani-American relations, and everyone would be happy with Rouhani. This did not happen. But that letter was a specific call to let go of Hezbollah and to stop militarily funding Hezbollah, first of all, and to call on Hezbollah itself to disarm and hand over its weapons and treat the Lebanese state like any other state. And it's, there's nothing hostile in that letter. But that is, I think, the final thing that he was working on, and he was going to send that to the Lebanese parliament and have that become government policy, that there would be a different take with Hezbollah. And Hezbollah, in 1989, when the civil war officially ended, the Ta'if Accords, Lebanon's current constitution, affords Hezbollah a strange luxury, and that is a resistance. Resistance being that they can stay armed. Every other Lebanese domestic party that was armed during the civil war was disarmed immediately. Hezbollah was the exception. And they've grown from being a sub-state militia with Irani funding to being probably the most important regional actor today in the Middle East. And they help keep Bashar al-Assad alive. They're involved in Iraq. They fight in Yemen. And they're involved in Lebanese issues regularly. Now, why would that machine... And that machine is Iran, Assad of Syria, and Hezbollah. It almost doesn't matter which of those three components was involved in his assassination. But let's assume that machine is involved. And you know what? Let's, even, let's assume that they hired people to do the assassination for them. And those people could be whoever you want them to be. Almost doesn't matter. But his, his, his positioning was against that status quo. Getting that arrangement to at least neutralize Lebanon from regional issues. And he was a champion of Lebanese neutrality in foreign policy. But I mean, uh, surely there would have been other voices that would have been saying things very similar to your dad, but who were probably much more open and frontal in their position, positions against Iran's influence. So in a sense, it almost seems as though it is a preemptive strike against him because he is a voice of moderation, who is trying to galvanize the Lebanese parliament. And they say, well, wait a minute, maybe this guy's gentle approach is what makes us scared, right? Because you would think that there are so many other people that would have said the exact same thing that was enunciated in that letter, no? Like, what's so unique about what he said? I mean, tons of politicians have probably said that, no? The, the, I don't like this word moderate because it assumes that the default is something else. So let's say, let's say the technocrat or the, or the democrat and let's say those that do not, are, they're not screaming and shouting for the wrong reasons. They're screaming and shouting for the right reasons. They've all been killed, all of them. I mean, or, or they're living abroad in fear. They've, I mean, these are the voices that have been uh, decimated. So what kind you know, of numbers are we talking about? Is it 10, 20? Like, is it, just to get a sense of the, how systematic yeah. this assassination machinery is. I mean, the, the assassinations go back, I guess, to your generation right. of, of the sort of the typical Lebanese politician who emerges on a platform that upsets regional players and gets removed. Right. That is, I guess, goes back to the 50s, even if you go far that's, back. Uh, that's politics. That's, that's uh, Lebanese politics. <laughs> yeah. But the most recent wave is starting with Rafiq Hariri. Right. It's the, and it's the uh, attempted assassinations that happened before. And it's also the successful assassinations that happened after. And so that's, 2000, that's 2005, right? 2005 until my father's. Right. So this is an eight-year stretch of 15 assassinations, 15 successful assassinations. 
all of these are either journalists, politicians, or uh, personalities that were advocating a different Lebanon. Uh, not a, it's not a sectarian war, not a religious war, not a, uh, not necessarily an actual war. It's just opening the debate to a an idea that is almost futile today, which is Lebanese sovereignty, and controlling your borders, having one government, one army, one stable entity that deals with its affairs, treating Lebanon more like Malta as opposed to Somalia. Right. So, kind of stabilizing and calming Lebanon down. And this is post-Civil War uh, longing, that why can't this country return to something functional? Not that Lebanon was great in the 50s and 60s. It was still difficult, but it was manageable. Right. Why is it unmanageable today? And I think my father, it's not the letter that killed him, but it's that kind of very quiet diplomacy and persuasion and his TV appearances, um, his regular TV appearances, challenging Hezbollah to their own narrative. And he was so, something he was doing repeatedly right before he died, which was challenging the lexicon Hezbollah used for their own justification, for retaining their arms. The Israeli, Israeli, Israeli thing that we lived with from the 80s, 90s, until partially until today, that everything has to do with Israel, Israel, Israel. The Zionists are there. You have to stay armed to fight the Zionists, especially since they're in Lebanon. Fine. They leave Lebanon. They stay maybe in the Shabbat farms. We're not sure. Maybe they're there. Maybe they're not. Is it Syrian? Is it Lebanese? doesn't matter. They're there. So keep your arms. This changed overnight to Tekfiri, Tekfiri, Tekfiri. It's almost like Israel was never a problem. Now it's the crazy Sunni who you need to fight. My father was engaged in that battle. He said, you, you do, you're pushing Lebanon into the worst situation possible, which is getting Lebanon involved in the Syrian war. And my father was uh, pretty much, and, uh, the, 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 he orchestrated the meeting that happened in 2012. It's called the Ba'abda Declaration. And this is the Lebanon's only foreign policy initiative that it's taken since the civil war ended. The Lebanese president, who's no longer there, there was a president in 2012, he called on neutrality from the Syrian war. Government exe executive order, all parties need to detach from Syria. It was never implemented. It was never successful. But even Hezbollah signed on to it, public pressure, to not get involved, from, not get involved in the Syrian war. My father was battling on that front. Now, this is a, it's almost like a battle of ideas more than a, I'm going to, you know, carry a megaphone, go to Martyrs Square and scream and say, you know, get rid of Hezbollah. That's not how he operated. And, uh, and many times he was pushed to actually not legitimize Hezbollah, but to explain them in a Lebanese context. And during the July 2006 war with uh, Hezbollah Israeli fighting in the summer of 2006, my father would end up on TV regularly being interviewed. And I'd be watching him, this would be three in the morning, Beirut time, to catch the evening news in the U.S. or wherever it was. And he would try to actually explain Hezbollah's positioning in a very rational way, not necessarily defending them for what they're doing, but actually trying to give it a context. So he's not a, he's not a, he's not a soldier. He's not, uh, fighting a, uh, he's not fighting a security war with Hezbollah. He was fighting, a, a, in a way, the, the, the narrative, and he was trying to engage them on their own terms, like why you're, what you're saying is completely false. 
he was he tried to get invited to their TV station, which is Al Manar. It's a Hezbollah run operation, and they would never let him on. He was trying to actually engage them, and like he didn't want to go to his own crowd all the time. He wanted to actually reach out to the other side. They refused. Did he ever meet the? Uh, is it is it Nasrallah? What's what's the name of the Hezbollah leader? Is it Nasrallah? Hassan Nasrallah. Yeah. Like, did he ever have an audience with him? Did they ever talk to one another? I don't think they've met. Okay. I, I, I don't think so. I'm perhaps, but I, I doubt it. I know that he, the Lebanese government, has Hezbollah figures in it. Uh, they entered politics not too long ago, so they're they're visible as opposed to the old days where they were just doing operations and and right. primarily in the south. Now they're involved in in, in government. So th- there are Hezbollah people that he had to meet regularly, but uh, I don't I don't know if Hassan Nasrallah. I don't think so. Now within within the sort of the Hezbollah presence in Lebanon. What percentage of the, sort of the active fighters and so on would be Lebanese Shia guys versus actual Iranians that are in the field in Lebanon? Oh, I think the number is uh, dominantly Lebanese right. Shia. I mean, Lebanese. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if there are many Irani. There may be some strategists sent to Lebanon and Syria and Yemen and Iraq, but I don't think Iran itself gets involved uh, directly. They prefer having the locals. Yeah, yeah. And the irony is that Lebanese soldiers, Hezbollah fighters, are now fighting in Syria. It's almost like it doesn't make sense today. So is the is the the official Lebanese army in the days in my days typically was more dominated by Christians, correct? now, would we say today, is that still the dynamic that much of the official sort of military structure is run by the Lebanese or is it 50-50? What's, what's the dynamic within the, 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 the official militia, uh, not militia, but military in Lebanon? Well, the official stance is the Lebanese military and the uh, parliamentary system were updated from a 6 to 5 ratio of Christian Muslim. This is pre-1989 to a 50-50 situation. Okay. So the Lebanese army is still 50-50 so, mean, so what does that mean? That means every every officer's position, uh, if there are generals and there are 40 positions for generals, there are 20 Christians, 20 Muslims. If there are colonels, there are 20. Is that, is that how it's literally broken down? If only it were that simple, because then you have the internal Christian divisions and Muslim divisions. Right. So it's, it's pretty much a negotiation between Maronites, Orthodox, Catholics, <laughs> Uh, Druze, Alawite, Sunni. So, so nothing has changed from my time, basically, you're saying. Zero progress. It got worse. It got worse. <laughs> That's yeah. it. That's it. And the, uh, I mean, if it matters, the token representation, which used to be there of, for the Lebanese Jews, has been removed. Yes. So yes. There, was, there was a small sort of like token thing here and there. Although Lebanese the, Jews could never be uh, prime minister or president, they could sure. have a seat. Yeah, okay. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, but that's been that's it's gone. It's it's, it's off still- the table. As a matter of fact, I know that it's off the table in a very sort of personal way because when I went to the consul general, uh, uh, you know, for that uh, event a few months ago, yes. about a month ago, uh, at the event there was your token khuri, a, 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 a Christian priest, and there was yep. an imam. But I kept looking for that rabbi, and I couldn't find him. But you know, I so I uh, got by accident. I was in New York walking, and you know, I saw a Lebanese synagogue in in Brooklyn. Mm. 
that so there's I mean it's it's unfortunate that the community is is okay in the diaspora sure, doesn't sure. really want to return for for many reasons and it's nice to actually see a part of Lebanese history that's it's it, at least it has a space to exist unfortunately not in Lebanon but uh, I went to in uh, in New York and even in Paris um, and you you see, I mean you meet through friends you meet Lebanese Jews that are very Lebanese, very, very Lebanese. I so mean, when, you hear, when you hear me speaking in Arabic, are you able to, uh, sorry, I'm speaking out. Uh, do you understand? Are you able to recognize my accent so that you could say, oh, this guy look, because uh, the Lebanese Jews typically speak like Syrians. They also speak like some Palestinians. Uh, quite different from how the typical Christian Lebanese speaks. And so oh, are you able to detect these things when I speak to you, even though we haven't spoken too much in Arabic, are you able to detect that or not really? You sound like you're from Beirut because okay. I would probably know if you're from Tripoli or from Saida or from Sur, from Tyre in the South, you have a Beiruti accent. Mm -hmm. And that's the accent I grew up with probably because I spent most of my life in, in that sort of uh, bubble, the Beiruti accent. So um, I, I would never know if you're Lebanese Christian, Muslim, Jew, Druze, whatever you want, would never be able to tell from the accent. The reason why I ask is because uh, Montreal, you know, is now, you know, full of all sorts of uh, people from Arabic countries. And oftentimes when you take a taxi, it is a token that the taxi driver is, will be from some, Arabic country, oftentimes from Lebanon. And as you probably know from the context of the Middle East, whenever somebody meets you, uh, they want to find in 74,000 different ways which which box to put you in uh, because they want to know, are you Muslim? Are you Christian? Are you? Of course, most of them don't ever think that you are Jewish. And so when I was coming back from Mexico from my trip recently, the, that exact dynamic happened where the taxi driver was trying to find out in every possible way where I was uh, from. Uh, you, you have a good, uh, if you want to use it, a good cover, which is you could easily get away with saying, Anasmijad, Mishgad. Actually, it's funny you say this because oftentimes when I introduce myself to, to you know, Arabic people uh, and I say, you know, my name is, is, is Gad Saad. Uh, they, they'll say they say uh, jad. Uh, yeah, you, you mean jad? I go no, I don't mean jad. I mean, and they're confused. Now the way I can get away with it, by the way, is because uh, you may, of course, you will know this, but some of our viewers won't. Uh, the Egyptian dialect uh, yeah, exactly. changes right. the j to yeah. g. So if you say anajaye, I am coming, it becomes anajaye, and so yeah. some think that it is a Egypt, Egyptian version of jad because you you turn the jad. To God, but of course, God is a Hebrew name, is a character from the from the from the Bible. So there you, can you be go. Egyptian, you can be a Lebanese Jew, you I, can be anything. You this you've got the good cover. Me, I cannot pass as Lebanese even when I try. <laughs> you're, you're, you're too, you need you need to get some sun, man. You're too you're too white. Wrong country. <laughs> can we? Can you even get any privileged uh, oppression points calling yourself a brown man, or you can't even fit that description? No, no, no. Actually, uh, I get uh, there are on occasion there's sympathy protests for any different cause you can imagine. There's always something going on in university setting. 
So I, I mean, I don't think I'm ever put in that category. It's like, you know, the white Scottish man who's curious about the third world. Right. I, I always try to explain to them. It's like, no, 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 I'm third world luggage, like first world situation, third world baggage. They don't even understand what I'm talking about. So it's like, I've let it go. And whatever they want me to be in any given situation. Even the name Ronnie is not, I mean, it doesn't bring up Lebanon or right. Arab or anything right. like that, which is a good thing. I think it's fine. I can, I can sort of navigate as I choose. Right. Well, Allah yirhamu bayyak. I was very, very sad uh, to hear the story. And I, I really recommend we'll, we'll, we'll cover a few more points and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Uh, I will really encourage people to watch the uh, clip. I think it's about a 30-minute clip, Ronnie, right? Is that, is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's about. very, very touching. Uh, and I know that at one point you talked about you, you've kept the last, this is quite morbid, I think the last tweet of your dad, is it a few instants, a few seconds before he died or how long before he died? It's, um, I think it's somewhere between five, seven minutes before the bomb went off. Unbelievable. And he was, uh, you know, I kept it going because I never closed his Twitter account. So I, having his iPad, I've kind of kept it just there. It's, it's frozen in time. And if you go to his Twitter feed, it's just as if he's, you know, he's, he's there, stuck in time. And it's, uh, he managed to write it in both English and Arabic. So, I mean, the guy was, my father was just, I think, literally on his phone as the car was in a very desperate situation. And I think you heard the bomb, right? I think in the documentary you talk about this, that you either, was it you or your brother had actually heard the bomb that killed your dad, correct? No, well, yeah, it was me. my my brother was in uh, in the states at the time. Okay. He, yeah, I uh, I heard it, and I live in the opposite end of the city, so I actually it was a it was a I mean, for those that have been to Lebanon, it's it was in Wadi Abu Shmir. Yeah, it was in the Jewish quarter, but it's no longer the Jewish quarter. It's just government buildings everywhere. He was driving down that neighborhood, and so the bomb went off in downtown, and uh, yeah, I heard it from my home. Of course, I did not. I mean, I would never assume that this was my father's assassination. This was just a, either a sonic boom, which we used to hear when we were younger, a jet, uh, Israeli jet flying over. They were happening less frequently. That's the first assumption. The other one, construction situation. Uh, then, of course, you, I mean, I've heard many assassinations in Beirut. I've heard many bombs going off. So that was there in the background. It could be another assassination. But within minutes, I, I found that it was my fault. Wow. Well, I can tell you this, and it's probably empty words, but uh, one can easily pick up your devotion and love for your dad, not only in how you speak about him in the various uh, mediums, but in how you share your story about him here and in other forums. So if anything, he certainly lives on through the love and devotion that you exhibit towards your dad. And we should all be so lucky as to have such a devoted son. So rest assured that... His legacy lives on. Uh, maybe we could end this. We don't want to end on such a sad note. It, based on you're now doing your PhD at Edinburgh University and you have a very good grasp of some of the political machinations that are happening in Lebanon. Is there any hope for optimism or is this going to be the status quo for the next 3,000 years? <laughs> 3,000? I got in trouble for saying 50. <laughs> when I uh, was being interviewed in Beirut, they kept saying, you know, what do you think? I'm like, well, 
you know, 50 years, maybe things will work out. And they're like, don't be so pessimistic. So I should have 3,000 years as my reference point. <laughs> and 50 sounds okay. Um, I don't think uh, the Lebanese situation will get better anytime soon. Uh, I don't think the groups that are controlling Lebanese security today or Lebanese foreign policy are, are investing in the Lebanon that other people were hoping for when the civil war ended. And I think uh, gradually the country will sort of decay, as we've been seeing the last few years in particular. The uh, security is almost a luxury today. The Lebanese government doesn't really exist in its traditional form. The presidency is vacant. Uh, maybe you're familiar with this terrible trash crisis that has emerged in Beirut. Yeah, I heard about it, yeah. I mean, it's a country of four million people, and the city of one, they can't even deal with their trash, and it's, I it, think... It's become, a tsunami of Zbele. Tsunami of Zbele. Add to that 1.5 million Syrian refugees and the half a million Palestinian refugees that are still there. So there's a, I think, I, it's hard to imagine a civil war erupting in Lebanon again. So I don't know if that's a that's maybe a good thing, a positive component to this mess that I think the Lebanese will not easily go back to a civil war. But other situations will probably emerge and a, a fracturing of the country I think is inevitable. And I think um so long as you have a uh, sub-state group like Hezbollah or other groups that before Hezbollah your time where the PLO was given carte blanche to do as it pleased in Lebanon. This is the beginning, in a way, of, of this story, that the Lebanese system in, in many ways disappeared about 40 years ago. And the, the state that once was sort of given a pedestal and said this is a shining example of coexistence and the mosaic everyone talks about in the Middle East, that has been gone for quite some time. And any attempt of putting it back together has been met with either assassination or or war, or just exile, get out of here. Uh, so I, I think uh, the Lebanese story is, I think, an increasing, uh, it's one of diminished prosperity and increased tragedy. And I, I like those two words because that is Samir Asir. He spoke about Beirut this way when he would, uh, the few occasions that he actually went public and would talk about Lebanese history. He said, a city torn between wealth and death, between life and tragedy between, you know, these are sort of synonymous words with the good and bad, right. equal footing. And I think that balance has sort of been tilted a bit more to the negative. And that's why you see in 2016 a country that cannot survive on its own. It's not, it can't stand on its own two feet. Well, so I don't know, if that's, that's not ending on a good note. Let me end on a good note. Okay, me, go for it. Let me try, this is, they got worse. <laughs> let me fix this. Um, the Lebanese spirit for good or bad, the Lebanese spirit is alive and well. So I tried to disconnect, and here I am talking to someone who is part of the same story. That no matter what I try to do to get a break from that country, it doesn't matter. The Lebanese spirit is alive. Now, that spirit, I think, un unfortunately, may be thriving outside of Lebanon today. It may be thriving well, actually. And you've seen many examples, Lebanese that have almost... Uh, uh, they took their talents with them and they made great contributions. So that's, uh, that's there. I think you can get rid of that. So the Lebanese spirit is alive and well. The Lebanese state, the Lebanese country, it's probably a lost cause. But at, at least one thing is salvageable and that's the spirit of Lebanon. Well, let us hope that you and I will one day soon 
be walking down the Beirut Corniche having similar conversations with maybe our respective children. You, I don't think you have children yet, but uh, as we say in Lebanon, if God wants, then you may have children and then we can hopefully have such wonderful conversations in our homelands. It was an absolute pleasure. Uh, sorry, you want to say something? Yeah, go ahead. I promise to you, I, I stopped doing the tour right when my father died. I have not done it since I left Lebanon. That if you were to return to Beirut at any point, and you decided to spend a few minutes in that city, I'll bring that tour back to life and I'll show you, baby. Ah, uh, shukra, Habibi. Shukra. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's a real pleasure talking to you. Stay on the line. Uh, guys, check out. I will be posting all of the various clips, some of the articles that uh, Ronnie has written, uh, the documentary about his father's tragic assassination. Please check those out. Uh, thank you for your support. Please spread and share this uh, video. Look, you've got two Lebanese. They don't care about their respective religions. They don't care about the backgrounds they come from. They're both Lebanese. They sit down in mutual respect and mutual tolerance talking to one another. That's how Lebanon should be. That's how the world should be. Thank you so much, buddy. Talk to you soon. Let me Thank end you. it, but stay on the line. Cheers.